Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Endangered Species Act was a 20-page law when it was first enacted in 1973 with an additional 30 pages of regulation set forth by the U.S. government to protect animal and plant life in imminent danger of extinction. Now, 50 years later, it has grown to 50 pages and is connected to thousands of regulations. Environmental attorney and historian Lowell E. Baer has just co-edited a collection of essays that looks to the future of the Act, the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years, is published by Roman and Littlefield and brings Lowell E. Baer to our show now. Welcome. It's good to be here, Leonard. I'm so glad. This is really important stuff. This is the second volume of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. Before we get into talking about what may happen in the future, let's go over some of the history of the Act, okay? Sure. Before it was enacted, wasn't hunting guided by a sportsman's code of conduct? Uh, But by the late 1800s, over-harvesting threatened many species, including birds that were hunted for their, their colorful plumage. Yes, there was a, a, a period of time in our history between roughly 1880 and uh, 1910 where um, the uh, there was commercial market hunting for uh, the market. Uh, a lot of agrarian people had moved uh, into, into a, a town or a city where they were cut off from raising their own crops, their own uh, hogs and chickens and and beef for for consumption and the market hunters um ruthlessly slaughtered uh, slaughtered uh, wild animals and uh, birds uh to fill the needs of the urban dweller and it was called market hunting and uh, a group of people um that included uh, Theodore Roosevelt who led the movement um George Bird Grinnell and others that rose up in opposition to that and, and, and got laws passed to stop it. But it took decades for the uh, Endangered Species Act to be enacted. Uh, yes. And even then, it pro- provided protection to certain species, allows others to be delisted in certain circumstances, doesn't That's it? That's correct. That's correct. There were, there were two earlier Endangered Species Acts. The one uh, that, that everyone focuses on and talks about today is the Endangered Species Act of 1973. But there were there were two earlier acts, a 1966 Act, which was more of a policy statement uh, than it was um, a regulation, um, and then the 1969 uh, Act, which just was a, a minor uh, addition to the 66 Act that added uh, species beyond America to that to that uh, uh, list of those that were declared endangered. But then the, the real act that we talk about today uh, was the 1973 Act, which um, did, it didn't really amend the first two acts. It did away with them totally, repealed them, and then created a, a brand new context for endangered species regulation and law. Have other nations enacted similar uh, legislation? Yes. Um, the um, 
in, in 1973, interestingly enough, the same era, in April of that uh, year, all the nations came together for a, a plenary potentate meeting, they call it, uh, uh, of all the nation's leaders came together here in Washington, and they met at Dunbarton Oaks, and they came up with uh, a, a, a joint position um, that that controlled um, the harvesting of endangered species worldwide mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> applied to every nation that signed on to that particular um enactment and then we followed uh in december of that year by the president signing the endangered species act which had been debated in congress all of 1972 and 73 but it was supported by both democratic majority congress and the nixon administration has that bipartisan support broken down it was supported by bipartisan um, efforts, and today, that was 50 years ago, and today it's a totally different world where partisanship now really controls, and that started about, oh, about uh, 20 years ago. Although it was uh, attacked from the start, wasn't it? There were people unhappy from the start. Um, those that testified during the hearings had concerns about the regulation, some of the, some of the details of the act. But in general, there was a united front to, to, to enact that particular law. Uh, however, it quickly thereafter became controversial over, uh, uh, when the Supreme Court ruled on the first, um, on the very first, um, challenge, uh, to the act. And it was, and the species involved was the snail darter, which stopped completion of a dam that the TVA was building out in Tennessee. And, and that was stopped by the Supreme Court. And that caused tremendous acrimony throughout the country and it's uh, festered thereafter. But didn't the court declare that Congress, when it was challenged in 1978, didn't the court declare that Congress intended for the U.S. government to save all species at any cost? Yes, it did. And the court was very clear about it. And the act is very clear that all species shall be saved, not just a few, but all of them. And, and that's presented its own set of problems because some species just can't be um, uh, saved. I mean, they're, they're going to go extinct. In which instance they get put in, in a different category, a different bin, if you will, by the, um, by the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, that, that enforces the act. Well, doesn't uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service have to identify species that are in peril? That are in peril? Yeah. Well, there, yes, that's their job to, to do that, but, but they, you're saying some they, some species are going to disappear just on their own, as they probably have throughout the course of the Earth's history. Yes, that's correct. But they act more on petitions that are filed by 
primarily NGOs um, rather than listings on their own, although they, they do an abundance of listings from their own research and the like, but they also have to act on the listings uh, on the petitions that are filed by private se- sector uh, as well. And in those instances when they have somebody that pushes a petition in front of them that forces them to take a position, at that point, um, they can then either declare something threatened or endangered, um, or they can say that it is not, uh, it's, it's listening is not warranted at this time because of the higher uh, priorities, uh, or other, uh, 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 petitions that are really ahead of it. They just don't have the time to deal with it. I mean, petitions from industry and businesses as opposed to environmentalists. Well, they come from all sectors. Mm-hmm. What about the hunters? Petition. Do hunters also petition, or is it usually larger uh, entities? No, it's generally it's generally it, it's generally uh, well-funded uh, NGOs that that do the petitioning, and some of them are more zealous than others in filing those petitions. Uh, the three that stand out are the uh, Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, Western Watersheds Project, and um, Wild Earth Guardians. What about uh, the states and the, and the federal government? Do they wind up in conflict? Oh yes, they do. But it's it, but it's not necessarily over what species have been uh, petitioned or have been listed. It's over how how once they're listed as threatened or endangered, how the funding is going to be provided to the states to then carry out the recovery efforts for that particular species. Because the burden is on the states um, to then provide um, uh, uh, the recovery efforts and and so forth. And that costs money. Hmm. But you say it's been a phenomenal conservation success story I would mm-hmm. there are many naysayers that want to pick it apart over different aspects of its results to date uh, the majority of conservationists would line up and say yes it's been a phenomenal success story but there are there are issues that continue to haunt its success, such as, well, how is how many uh, of those that you have listed have been actually recovered? And of those that have been recovered, uh, how many of them have been delisted um, or downlisted back to uh, the, the the way before they were listed? Um, as endangered, sir. Listed as endangered, so now they're no longer considered or, or threatened. Mm-hmm. Or threatened. There are two different classifications: either they're threatened or they're endangered. They're two separate classifications. Can you explain what uh, to me they sound? That sounds similar. Yes, um, they, they are very similar, and as a matter of fact, the the manner in which they are dealt with after a listing of either threatened or endangered is very very similar. However. Threatened ones 
are those species that are far easier to recover and further along in their population dynamics and their geographical coverage um, that uh, uh, um, saving that species will not be as difficult as the endangered ones. Now, what led to its coming before the Supreme Court in 1978? A, a very different Supreme Court than we have today, obviously. Yes, very much so. Um, what led to it is your question. Mm -hmm. There was a, a law professor out in Tennessee who, um, through a biologist out there, um, and he was an avid fisherman, uh, heard that the that the snail darter, which is a, a small subspecies of the bass that lived in this particular river uh, was going to was going to become extinct when this dam was completed and 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 the river became a reservoir uh, because this species thrives on cold water moving quickly through through an environment and not being ponded up in a reservoir and they were, the, the fear is that they, they were going to destroy that habitat with this dam out in, it was called the Teleco Dam out in uh, Tennessee. And, um, so he, he, first of all, uh, sued under one law for the Endangered Species Act was passed. And then when it was passed, he, he petitioned, personally petitioned along with one of his law students, to have it listed as endangered, which would then stop the construction of the dam and the creation of the reservoir and the destruction of the of the freshwater free-flowing river's habitat. And um, he, so he, that's how that particular uh, court uh, battle started. Started in 70, started in 75, when he petitioned, and it was heard by the Supreme Court in 78. I said I can't imagine the current court coming to similar decision. How did it decide in the dusky gopher frog case? Well, that's a very different set of circumstances. In that case, the Fish and Wildlife Service, recognizing that the population of the frog was very, very limited, very scarce. And it lived in certain ephemeral ponds out in, in a particular ecosystem. And I'd have to remember where it was out west. Um, in, in southwest, actually. I think it was Louisiana. And, um, the, by, by the way, service, Louisiana is not the southwest. <laughs> it's the southeast. Well, 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 the Fish and Wildlife Service said that this whole area, which was uh, timberland being harvested by a major timber, timber company, a white warehouser, um, said that that habitat was now for the, the, the frog. Yet frogs had never particularly lived in that particular ecosystem. 
the, the, the service, the Fish and Wildlife Service thought there was some improvements to it with some creation of, of, of water habitats in the lake, that that was um, a proper um, place for those frogs to live. But it had never historically been occupied by the frog. And that was overturned by the Supreme Court that said, no, 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 you cannot take an area where, the, where, where a critter does, um, does not live or has never lived and declare it a, a part of their critical habitat, which is, then becomes protective, which would stop the forestry activities. As a matter of fact, as the forest industry demonstrated, they would have to, to, to cut down all the trees, regrow di- a different type of tree, um, and create these ephemeral ponds. And the Supreme Court, no, frogs never live there. It, it, you have to make such major modifications to the ecosystem and the habitat that you're, you're creating a habitat for these frogs. And that, that's above and beyond what the law requires. So they were, so that in that particular case, the petitioner, uh, that fought this, uh, Weyerhaeuser won. I'm talking with Lowell E. Bear, who is uh, the co-editor with Dr. John E. Organ and Christopher E. Siegel of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. Um, we uh, received the, the new book, The Next 50 Years. Uh, it's published by Roman and Littlefield, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You talked about uh, life in the rivers and streams. What about uh, the things that live in coastal waters, the fish, the reptiles, and the mammals? Are they covered? Yes, they are. And the whale is the predominant species that's be- that's most threatened at this point. So, As it has been for 50 years. I mean, it continues to be threatened and endangered. So what does the uh, the act allow people to do or not did they just have to well right now the uh, as far as I understand the many of the waters are being polluted well the primary the primary threat to the whales and the porpoises and other larger fish are the fishing lines and the nets that are used by commercial fishermen uh, uh, in the eastern seaboard and especially north uh, to harvest um, oysters, but, but more importantly, to, obst- uh, to harvest lobster. And the, these big fish get caught up in those nets and those lines. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then uh, they're, they're so caught up they can't, they can, can no longer survive because it kills them eventually, um, drags them down and kills them. And so the fishermen are under constant regulation as to the kinds of nets, the kinds of paraphernalia that they can use to harvest, especially lobster. As to pollution, which you touched upon, um, that, that, that really more, more, uh, more affects the salmon that come up the rivers and the streams, uh, for spawning. Uh, rather than out in the ocean, and that's where it has become, pollution has become most apparent 
as it relates to um, uh, fish, and it's primarily salmon. The Endangered Species Act, as we said earlier, was uh, a bipartisan bill, but didn't it become extremely or steadily more controversial, as in the case of the northern spotted owl and the timber wars in the Pacific Northwest in the late 1980s and early 90s? Yes. Yes, that's another high point. Um, The snail darter, it's kind of the bookend of the snail darter. The snail darter case that landed in the Supreme Court and really caused the, in, the the people in the United States to wake up and realize what this act said uh, uh, was became law uh, became more apparent to them when the Supreme Court ruled in, on the snail darter in 1978, um, and because it said uh, to the American people, "Hey, the act covers all species and and their related ecosystems, both the habitat." In, in the species that is declared threatened or endangered. Now, when it comes to the owl, everyone thinks that, and that was a little later, that was in the, um, let's see, that was during the Clinton administration when um, they finally r- resolved an approach to deal with the problem. But everyone thinks that they, that it was caused, the problem with the owl was caused by the Endangered Species Act. It wasn't. That became a proxy later um, when it was declared endangered. The, the owl, the northern spotted owl, was declared endangered. But before that was the Northwest Forest Plan, which, beca- which cut back on logging and restricted logging in certain areas. Which led to the timber uh, wars. Sir? Which led to the timber wars in the Pacific Northwest. That, that led to the timber wars, the Northwest Forest Plan, and it's taking certain areas out of production because they were government-owned and they would lease the, the land to the forest, to the uh, timber industry to, for, to harvest there. And those were taken out of production. What was going on really was that foreign imports were, were falling off. Um, raw logs were being sent abroad rather than finished lumber. So the, the need to finish lumber to, uh, here uh, was being decreased substantially. And imports to those countries were coming from other areas of the, of the world, like the South America. And those timber, cheap, far cheaper than our timber, um, was, was being sent abroad. And so it really cut the demand for U.S. timber back. But... Simultaneously, this forest plan, a Northwest forest plan, uh, originated simultaneously with that, and a listing on the spotted owl occurred as endangered. Um, and everyone then jumped on, and from the media standpoint, jumped on the spotted owl mm-hmm. as the real cause of the wars. It wasn't at all. It was the Northwest forest plan. Why did the uh, amendments to the law cease in the late 1990s. Well, it was the last major amendment. There were three. There were three major amendments, and the last one was 1988. Um, <clears throat> Congress by then had become so divisive in its stance on dealing with endangered species 
that the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the other one that 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 governs uh, um, um, aquatic mammals, which is the uh, uh, NIMS, uh, the National. Um, it's part of the Commerce Department. It's a totally different department. Um, but uh, the, those two are the controlling factors in determining what's listed and what's not. But, Leonard, what, your question again, I'm not sure I understood it. Well, I was wondering why suddenly amendments ceased in the, the late yeah. 1990s. Yeah. And you said it, that partly because uh, partisanship had taken over. Was this largely Democrats versus Republicans or Republicans versus Democrats? Well, it was both, yeah. It, yes, it was all of the above. Um, I mean, were, were, the, were the Democrats likely, were the Democrats more likely to be supporting uh, the, the, the act or Yes. Did it get more complex than that? No, no, it was primarily um, a Republican or a Democratic versus Republican approach to dealing with the law. Hmm. And the Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't seem to get certain um, things done in the field because the way the law was written. And so what they began to do is strengthen their regulations and change their regulations and became much more flexible in how they applied the Endangered Species Act to um, to to the country. Um, it was a very rigid law, as I said, and accordingly, Fish and Wildlife Service and NIMS, the other one, the other agency, <clears throat> were very stringent in their in their original oversight um, and very hard line. There's a whole separate story there as to why. Uh, they were that way, but the law is written as a uh, not as a a, a proactive law, uh, but quite the contrary. It's a reactive law, hmm. and um, so the the Fish and Wildlife Service's hands were bound, and the only way they could get around some of these problems that were created because of, because of gridlock in the Congress was to. Um, really exercise their regulatory authority and come up with more flexible ways to administer the act. And so they finally, through uh, a flexibility and regulations, made it easier for the country to deal with than the Congress would have ever, ever. The Congress just could never get its arms around how to deal with some, some very uh, problematic issues for industry and commerce. And so through the regulatory process, not the, 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 uh, congressional process, it, they have proceeded ever since, and since 1988. And the key to the future, you mentioned that this, we're talking about volume two, <clears throat> at the conclusion of volume one and at the conclusion of volume two, I, I'm very clear in pointing the future to, to the, to the future coming through the regulatory process. Forget Congress. I mean, just forget it. Go through the regulatory process and work more collaboratively with the private sector because the private sector has developed uh, in the last uh, few years a uh, movement called um, uh, conservation without conflict, conservation without conflict. And it's a collaborative approach where they work 
directly with the federal government and through the regulatory process to deal with hard issues that the Congress just just could never uh, uh, get their arms around. That's part of it. But the other part is many people in the on the in the private sector that really work with the act daily are afraid to open up any discussions about the Endangered Species Act because they're afraid that um, attempts will be made then once it's on the congressional floor to uh, really weaken the act. uh, Leonard, since 19, let's see, this is 2023. In the last uh, 10 years, we figured it out, and, and it was supported by another study. There have been 600 attempts, 600 attempts in the Congress to, uh, for bills that were passed, uh, were, in, were, were introduced to weaken the law or do away with it, just plain do away with it. And it 600 attempts. And it, and and it, it, did it matter, did matter who was the president, Obama, Trump, or Biden? No, it did, it didn't matter. But there were 600 attempts, and that's what, uh, folks that work with the, with the Endangered Species Act are, are fearful of is, um, once a bill is introduced and it, if it becomes really live discussion on, and on the Hill, God knows what, what could come out of it. And they're afraid it would weaken the act because of the, of the divisiveness of Congress. Has funding remained constant? No. No, it is not. It has slowly, slowly, slowly increased over the years, but it is very, we're very, the federal government is very deficient in their funding to stand behind the commitment they made 50 years ago. 50 years ago, it was a moral and ethical decision. And that's, those were the words that were used, um, in the Congress repeatedly in their dialogue. Uh, this is a moral and ethical requirement that we as a nation um, must must do have an endangered species act, and uh, um, it's it, it is relevant. It's more relevant today than it was then. But I'm not sure I've answered your question. Well, yeah, basically, the, the a lot of these things seem to be a little hazy, as it is, isn't it? Well, we'll get to that after we take a little break. Okay. This sure. is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming at WBAI.org. If the jungle was your playground and the forest was your home, and the meadows and the mountains were where you loved to roam, if you woke up in the morning and all of this was gone, how would you feel? I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Lowell Lee Bear. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Codex of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, we're talking about Volume 2, the, which is covers the next 50 years. Uh, to do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 
209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Lowell Ebert, who is one of the editors, the lead editor of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years from Roman and Littlefield. Um, throughout its history, hasn't the act been shaped by three different aspects of the law, legislative amendments, administrative rules, and judicial opinions? Yes. So yes, there have been... There have been do they contradict um, the, each other sometimes? Oh, they absolutely do. As you said when you opened the program, the law today is 50 pages, and there are 5,000 pages of regulations. Hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of those have been passed Throughout the years, there have been three major congressional amendments, the last one in 1988. And uh, unfortunately, because there were times, different Congresses, different folks involved in, in uh, administering the act, there, have been, there has been conflict um, introduced totally by accident, not by, by intent. Uh, but yes, they've, it's been, there've been some conflicts. But you mentioned uh, before the, cl- the, um, your break, uh, the question of funding. Can we go back to that? Sure, go ahead. Um, we are terribly underfunded. Congress does not st- has not stood behind its moral and ethical obligation that it established 50 years ago to, to save endangered species, plants and animals. Okay. The states have taken up a lot of the slack uh, much, a lot of money does go from the federal government into the protection of our species. But several years ago, four or five years ago, um, the states put together a blue ribbon panel to look at the, this issue of funding because they're so underfunded. Um, the states are the ones that have to plan, do recovery, um, and bear the burden of recovery and the costs of that when the federal government um, declares a species threatened or endangered. Okay. So the states put together a, a blue ribbon panel and uh, they studied the problem for a year or two and came up w- that with the, the number of $1.3 billion a year that wow. all the states collectively needed in order to maintain, um, uh, their, their obligations to maintain endangered species uh, once they're declared endangered. And that $1.3 billion was put together. Every state said how much they needed per year. Uh, and when they were at, all added up, it was $1.3 billion. Uh, 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 they wrote a law called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. That law has now been pending in Congress. We're now in the fourth Congress since it was first introduced. Hmm. The need has not changed, but Congress will not deal with it. And we, we, the states have been, been, and, and the, the whole conservation community have been really counting on the, on the federal government to stand behind its, its commitment of 50 years ago, um, by passing RAWA, R-A-W-A. And, 
that would cure many of the problems. So what's Leonard, preventing but, but Roa that's, from that's being enacted? Sir? What is preventing Roa from being enacted? Well, when you, when you get down in the weeds, um, the Congress has really become more fiscally respons- responsive. And whenever a bill is about to pass, uh, part of the, mm, part of the, of, of the protocol is to determine how they're going to, how, if it's an appropriations bill, it's going to appropriate money. Where's the money coming from? And what's held it up is the Congress not agreeing amongst themselves as to where the money should come from. The first suggestion of the Blue Ribbon Panel was to tack another half percent on the excise tax um, uh, extraction of oil and gas uh, uh, from federal lands and the Gulf of Mexico, um, which didn't like that idea. The industry fought it for another half percent. And they have been struggling for years to figure out an alternate way of paying for it, such that it would not come directly out of the taxpayer's pocket. And that's what's held it up, really, is how are we going to pay for this? And it's been the fiscal um, fiscal uh, uh, stubbornness of Congress to hold, you know, hold the conservation community accountable for answering that question. For your volume two, you've included the writings of 27 authors. Yes. Uh, and they include Endangered Species Act administrators, scholars, and attorneys. What are some of the topics they cover? I thought I'd turn this off. Um, what are what, uh, Leonard? What is the range of topics that they cover? These twenty-seven. Well, in some cases, well, it's more than one on on an essay, but there are quite a few essays that you've included. Um, well, the the most intriguing is is um, uh, gen- genomic the, the genomic field. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you what, what they are, sir. I was going to ask you what <laughs> the role of genomics uh, and how, why they are relevant. Okay, um, uh, a couple of scientists up at, um, in Massachusetts um, were dealing with the issue of of, of of the species that lives both in the eastern United States and eastern Canada, the lynx, the Canadian lynx, and how do we how do we make sure that that, that, that particular species can survive? Um, what they did is began to study the genetics of the, of, of five, um, of, of that live species hmm. to do the, do its, do a, 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 through the blood and tissue samples, a, a complete, uh, genomic inventory of that critter of that particular species and through that um, they were able to to begin to identify how long it's been been around how many years it's been around and it's been around for centuries and so they went back and looked at um, climate change and different ecosystem changes throughout that period to see in the harsher periods that are tougher on 
that species to survive. Uh, what they did to survive, they could tell that through their, their sampling. Um, and so they're, they're beginning to, to apply genomics as, as one example of, 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 of looking at a species and then looking through history at, at the, the evolution of that species over time and how it survived during some of the, the harder, the harsher periods. Does, does and, it matter whether know, the area in question is a multiple species habitat or not? It would include that, yes. Hmm. Finish yes, what you were about include. to say. I'm sorry I interrupted. Of, well, you asked me if it, if, if it applied to multiple yeah. species. Yeah. And, and the answer is yes. I mean, any species, they can do the genomics on it. And just like we have the human genomic um, chain, uh, they can do the same now. They're applying that science to to to, to animals that are that are um, in crisis or could be in crisis to try to figure out through time how that particular species has survived. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Lowly Bear co-editor with Dr. John F. Organ and Christopher E. Siegel of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. It's a two-volume set. Uh, we've been talking uh, mostly about the next 50 years, uh, the, 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 the newer book, because that's the one that was sent to me, by the way. And it's, it's published by Roman and, and uh, Littlefield. Um, so um, you mentioned global warming how much of an impact has it had and is it and is it likely to have in the future because this year is incredible <laughs> uh, they're predicting uh, i saw an article today that said that this is going to feel like spring in the future sure um, it, it it it's having a major impact leonard um let me be more specific with global warming, warming has become has become intense, and numerous forest fires far broader, far more destructive than in the past. Uh, major floods. Um, my God, who ever expected to see a tropical storm in Southern California? Mm -hmm. Just one example of of global warming. Okay, I've mentioned just three, and then of course the heat. Uh, what it's done with the animal community and the plant community is forced certain animals to move south, birds as well as as um, uh, animals, to move in their migration patterns more, more sorry, more north, where it's mm -hmm. cooler. Um, and the um, impact it's having on those species, both plants and animals, Especially with, with floods and wildfires is dramatic. When, when I see on the nightly news, the new fires that are burning in Washington or Oregon or out west, even in Alaska now and up in Nova Scotia, for God's sake, and one of the islands over in Greece, I say, and, and they always say, and the media always tells us how many structures were lost and how many people lost their lives. Look at Maui. Well, I often wonder not that, 
but how many species lost their homes because the habitat that those people live in, um, in those communities are also habitat to birds and animals and plants. How many of those have been destroyed uh, along with, with people's lives and structures? Um, especially, um, ground, I mean, in the bird uh, family, you look at the turkeys, um, uh, bobwhite quail, uh, and other, and, um, uh, grouse um, and other ground dwelling species, gallinaceous species that are ground dwelling that can't outrun the forest fires, these quick moving, moving forest fires and other small animals, um, get, just get totally destroyed by these, these fires, or these floods. And nobody, you know, we don't have, um, we don't, when we see these reports, obviously you don't hear about that, but that's what I wonder about. When there's a new fire breaks out and it, you know, consumes tens of thousands of acres, I say to myself, my God, how many birds were nesting in that, in that ecosystem? Uh, how many critters could not outrun those flames, uh, or get away from? Them? Uh, that's just one example of how climate change is impacting the habitats of our animals. Um, in addition to forcing migration patterns, further north where things are cooler. Will that save them? Aren't there problems when they come north as well? Well, there, 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 there are, but they're getting away from the, 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 the environment within which they've been comfortable, but they're migratory creatures anyway. So they're used to moving, you know, uh, further north or further south. In this instance, it'd be further north. But they're used to the migration patterns and and so they're adapting to the the new ecosystems that they're moving into. Do we have a sense of what the most endangered species are currently? Yeah, we do. Um, off the top of my head, uh, I would say probably the uh, greater sage grouse would be one of the leaders um, in, in that community, the greater sage grouse is probably one of the leading candidates to respond. Certainly the monarch butterflies. The monarch mm -hmm. butterfly, eastern populations down, it, we've lost 90% of it. Mm. And in the west, uh, the, the, two or three years ago, it was 98%. It's gotten back to 90%. But the, the, the monarch is, is, is almost uh, gone. Just as one example. And very quickly, and then, just a few years ago, when I had a house upstate, I don't anymore, I had lots of monarchs every summer, and then, or spring anyway, and they would all lay their eggs. And then, then one year, suddenly, hardly any came. Yes. And I guess uh, that's not wasn't just true of where I was living, but everywhere. So the the uh, so last time is um, it is it because when, is it because their habitat has been destroyed because of the foods that they eat are no longer available to them? Uh, uh, their habitats have lost, but pesticides are mm. killing them off. Ah. And I would say uh, habitat of uh, uh, the fractionalization and destruction of habitat and the um, uh, uh, out of control use of pesticides is what's doing it. Um, the, the antidote for, 
for this great loss is a, a national movement to plant more milkweed mm-hmm. because they live those yeah. those those monarchs lay their eggs on milkweed and then the caterpillars eat the milkweed. Yeah, I had a lot of milkweed, but yeah, and and that's you know, and with the destruction of of the milkweed because it's considered a plant a, a, a weed, and so farmers used to you know have fences around their field. Now the fences are gone and. They, and they, they farm all the way to the edge of the adjacent road or the adjacent property. And uh, so much of our, of our habitat is gone. But we're, you know, the, 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 the mayors and the highway departments and the um, companies, um, gas and electric utilities that have big swaths um, of open space where they run their, their, their lines or underground uh, tunnels for their, their pipes. Uh, are all focused on adding milkweed to those habitats. Well, you include a list of suggestions for what should be done in the future. Other than adding milkweed, what are some of the other things that you'd like to see? Well, further regulation of the pesticides is one. And, of course, you've got great pushback from the from the industries that, that make the pesticide, but also the commercial um, uh, crop growers, that use heavily use pesticides to control pests in their, you know, in their crops. And so we really have a, 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 a push uh, against each other in, 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 in dealing with pesticides. Um, now, the volume two, as you said, was written by scientists, administrators, and attorneys. Um, when we looked really looked across the scale um, a lot of our, of our of our suggestions had to do with expanding the regulations that I referred to earlier and so we methodically looked at different uh, types of regulations that, that exist today and then suggest how those regulations could be broadened that's number one but number two um, we've really been pushing hard conservation without conflict. Um, that means the collaborative process to try to introduce to certain industries and, and uh, factions within our society the need for collaboration to deal or straight up with each other when we're pushing against each other on some particular uh, issue that relates to saving a species. And collaboration is, is absolutely key uh, and some industries will just simply not cross the line and, and talk to us about it. And other industries have embraced it. For example, the forestry industry has really embraced collaboration. And it worked out, um, and, and it, they're fairly advanced in their work with Fish and Wildlife Service in, in forestry regulations. But you, you, you talk to the ranchers and the farmers, they don't even want to talk to you. About, about the Endangered Species Act and what could be done to help them, their bottom line, and at the same time save species and improve ecosystems. And so it's really a difficult task to try to collaborate with all segments of society. Uh, but collaboration is, is extensively discussed in volume two and how it has helped parts of the country that have in fact used collaborative um, conservation in their work. And, and the other one then is 
pre-listing activities, such as the sage-grouse. Eleven states mm-hmm. came together that had sage-grouse in their, in their, in their states, and they came together to work out, um, um, uh, 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 plans to restore habitat and to, to support that decline of that species population. And, um, it, it has worked very well. Uh, some of the states have pulled back a little bit, but that's an example of how you can take uh, across when critters cross state lines, how the collaborative process can really help. Well, alas, we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. But I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been talking with Lowell E. Bear, B-A-I-E-R, in addition to authoring numerous articles and monographs over the past 60 years. He's the author of five award-winning books and now co editor with Dr. John F. Morgan and Christopher E. Siegel of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years. It also has a foreword by Representative Debbie Dingell and Senator Martin Heinrich. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you at 99.5. We're going through a rough time. We have ever since the beginning of the pandemic. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopay right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, edited by Lowell E. Bear. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI right now. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, $5, 10 15 $20 a month, what we call a BAI buddy, and uh, that allows us to plan for the future, and you can do it as long as you wish. Uh, thank you so much. If you tune in regularly, please consider helping the station, the only one on New York Radio that's 100% listener-sponsored with your tax-deductible support. Thanks for listening.